Welcome to the new episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to the 19th episode in our season on Haunted Hollywood, which is, as always, hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. It may seem like we've been wandering around the mean streets and dark back alleys of Hollywood for a long time now, but we still have some more places to visit before the season comes to an end. There are more stories to hear, hearts to break, murders to solve, and dreams to get stomped on, dented, and broken before we're through. Have you missed some of the shows from this season, or is this your first time tuning in? Well, if so, you're going to want to go back and start with episode 70 of the podcast, which will get you caught up on all the murder and mayhem that's already happened. Just keep in mind the episodes in this season are definitely not suitable for all listeners. So if you continue on from here, you cannot say that we didn't warn you. Still listening? Good. Because I like this episode a lot. Not only is it about the hauntings connected to one of Hollywood's true comedians, but it's also a sequel or maybe it's a prequel to our last episode. We'll be talking about two blondes in this episode, both of whom died way too young and were connected over six decades by the same strange little man. So sit back, relax, and get ready to meet Gene Harlow, Sharon Tate, and an odd duck by the name of Paul Byrne. Jean Harlow was an American original, funny, sassy, and filled with life. She was a born comedian, but like so many other comic stars of the movies, her personal life was filled with tragedy, including the mysterious death of her second husband, who died under very strange circumstances in 1932. She was born Harlene Harlow Carpenter on March 3rd, 1911 in Kansas City, Missouri. Her father, Montclair Carpenter, was a prominent dentist and her mother, Jean, was an unhappy homemaker. Her parents divorced in 1922 and the next year, Harlene and her mother moved to Hollywood, hoping to get lucky in the movies. But after two frustrating years of pounding the pavement, they reluctantly returned to the Midwest. And honestly, they didn't have a lot of choice. Harlene's grandfather, prominent real estate agent, Skip Harlow, demanded that Harlene be returned to Kansas City. If she wasn't, her mother would be written out of his will. And believe me, her mother didn't want that. Skip adored his granddaughter and spoiled her every way that he could. She attended private schools and led a privileged life and her mother sponged off her however she could. By then, mom had met Marino Bello, a married slick talker who had charmed his way into her life. While Harlene barely tolerated the man, Skip Harlow hated him. However, he preferred that his daughter marry the scheming Bello than continue her unseemly affair with him. After Bello's first wife filed for divorce, surprise, she married him in early 1927. Well, by then, Harlene, who had turned into a stunning young woman, was attending a private girls' academy in Lake Forest, Illinois. On a blind date, she met Charles Fremont McGrew II, the heir of a wealthy local family. For the bored young woman, marriage to the rich young man seemed preferable to continuing her academic life. So Charles and the 16-year-old Harlene eloped in September 1927. 
A few months later, Charles came into a portion of his inheritance and the newlyweds departed for LA. They bought a home in Beverly Hills and settled down to enjoy their lavish lifestyle in Southern California. Then, much to the couple's dismay, Harleen's mother and her equally as loathsome husband also moved to the West Coast, hoping to share in Harleen's affluent new life. Although she was content in her life as a wealthy housewife, fate intervened in Harleen's world. Through a friend, she was introduced to executives at Fox Films, and it was suggested that she try her hand at movie acting. Her friends wagered that she'd be too shy to give it a go, and to prove them wrong, she registered at Central Casting using her mother's maiden name of Jean Harlow and got signed by the studio. She made her movie debut in a bit part in 1928. Sensing an opportunity, her mother and Bello persuaded the young woman to seek a movie career. Jean was soon appearing in small roles for Paramount and other studios. In those days, it wasn't seen as socially acceptable to be in the entertainment industry. Well, not for women, at least. Jean was, after all, the society wife of a wealthy heir. So Charles put his foot down. He told Jean she would have to choose between him and the movies. Well, with a lot of help from her mother, who kept pushing her toward a career in films, she chose the movies. And the couple divorced in 1930. Jean was now supporting herself and, of course, her meddling mother and stepfather. And she began to get more serious about her career, and she was soon working more than ever. She landed a small role in Clara Bow's The Saturday Night Kid and some other movies, but her big break came about thanks to billionaire Howard Hughes' fascination with Hollywood. When Hughes signed Gene to a five-year contract, he already had a movie in the works called Hell's Angels, starring Greta Neeson. Then overnight, talking pictures became all the rage, and Hell's Angels had to be remade with sound. Well, Jean won the lead in the new picture, and she quickly skyrocketed as an overnight sensation. Hell's Angels premiered at Sid Grauman's Chinese Theater in May 1930, and while critics weren't kind about her performances, audience loved her. The Hollywood publicity machine went into overdrive for Jean. A publicist came up with a nickname for her, the Platinum Blonde, and even used it as the title for her next film to plant the moniker in the public's mind. Well, she soon became known for her white blonde hair and her daring low-cut necklines. Well, people couldn't get enough of Jean, and she attracted crowds whenever she made public appearances. Women across the country began bleaching out their hair to match hers. While shooting Hell's Angels, 18-year-old Jean met a 40-year-old MGM producer named Paul Byrne. She became intrigued by him, and Paul had taken a strong interest in her career. He had arranged for her to come to MGM on loan for a movie called Beast of the City, which was released in 1932. He also used his influence at the studio to get MGM to buy out Gene's contract from Howard Hughes. It would have been hard to find two people more incompatible than Gene Harlow and Paul Byrne. Most of Byrne's contemporaries considered him a genius, although a rather strange one. He was born in Germany as Paul Levy in 1889, and he came to New York with his parents when he was nine years old. He originally planned to study psychiatry, but that costly dream ended when his father died in 1908. He supported his family and later enrolled at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, graduating in 1911. By then, he had adopted the less ethnic stage name of Paul Byrne and went to work acting, stage managing, and writing scripts for silent films. His mother committed suicide in 1920, and Byrne was so ashamed of this that he often told others that her death was accidental. And for the rest of his life, he feared he had inherited her mental instability. Byrne later took a job in Toronto with a fledgling film company and then moved west to California when he realized its potential for movies. 
After landing in Hollywood, he worked as a film cutter and a script editor before directing a few pictures and ending up as a supervisor at MGM. In 1928, Irving C. Thalberg appointed Byrne his second-in-command. During his time in Hollywood, Byrne became infatuated with several beautiful actresses, including Joan Crawford and Barbara Lamar, who died from drug addiction in 1926. However, none of these infatuations led to romance, and rumors circulated that Byrne had some issues when it came to women, ranging from severe mood swings to deep depression and stalking. Most avoided him when it came to relationships. Even so, he did have a reputation in Hollywood as a sensitive and compassionate person, which, trust me, is a very rare thing in that town. And people went to Paul for advice, for help, and for sympathy. And maybe that's what attracted Jean to him in the first place. We'll probably never know. Well, in May of 1932, she was filming Redheaded Woman and was being taken out on the town by Paul. He'd never been much for public life and was something of a mystery man to those who craved the spotlight and the lure of Hollywood's legendary nightlife. No one said much when he began appearing in some of the local clubs with Gene because it was assumed it would never last. Soon though, Paul began telling his associates that he and Gene were going to be married. Well, this was shocking enough, but gossips were genuinely stunned when Gene confirmed it. Everyone seemed amazed that Jean would consider marrying the nondescript little man who was 22 years older than she was. It was assumed that the marriage was one of convenience to simply further her career, but that wasn't the case. She genuinely liked Paul, and nothing that anyone told her, including her nosy mother, could change her mind about him. Little planning went into the ceremony, and in fact, Jean didn't even have time to purchase a real wedding gown. She simply went into a dress shop and bought an off-the-rack white dress and a matching shawl. They were married on Saturday, July 2nd, 1932, in a small ceremony at Paul's home. Then, to Jean's bewilderment, they didn't consummate their marriage that night. Well, she decided to accept this as a sign of his tremendous respect for her, but who knows what she was really thinking. At a reception on Sunday, the bride seemed very happy, but that's not going to last. Over the next few weeks, Jean was busy filming her next picture, Red Dust. There were delays in production, which gave her time to spend at home, developing a dislike for Paul's isolated home in Benedict Canyon. It was far away from everything, set back on five acres, and Jean wanted to sell it and find another place, but Paul refused. He wanted it to be their home together. As the summer edged toward fall, Paul became more and more depressed, distraught, and exhausted. He worried that his new bride was unhappy. He worried about the house. Really, he just worried about everything. He began drinking heavily, while at the same time, Jean seemed happy. She told friends she hoped that she and Paul could adopt a child. On Friday and Saturday, September 2nd and 3rd, Jean was at work on the set of Red Dust, while Paul was busy developing China Seas, an upcoming picture for Jean. On Saturday night, because Jean was delayed at the studio, Paul canceled plans for them to attend a celebrity party. Instead, he dined at a bungalow at the Ambassador Hotel with married MGM producer Bernard Hyman and his mistress. Paul then went home, read for a while, and went to bed. Jean stayed at her mother's house that evening because it was closer to the studio and she had to go back early in the morning. On Sunday, Paul worked at home and Jean went back to the studio. She'd promised her mother that she'd stay with her again that night since her stepfather was out of town. When Jean talked with Paul that evening, she tried to convince him to come over to her mother's for dinner, but he didn't feel like getting out, he told her. When Jean suggested coming home to be with him, he told her to keep her plans and not worry about him. He'd be fine. And that's what makes what he wrote to her in his final letter even more puzzling. 
On Monday morning, September 5th, Paul's married cook and butler arrived at the Benedict Canyon home to find Paul's nude body in a pool of blood. He was on the floor in front of a full-length mirror in Jean's dressing room. He was supposedly drenched in Jean's favorite perfume and had been shot in the head with a 38 caliber revolver, which was still lying by his side. After discovering the body, the butler went running to find his wife. She called Jean's mother and broke the bad news. Then Jean's mother called Louis B. Mayer, head of MGM, who then called MGM security chief W.P. Hendry, who was at home in Santa Monica enjoying the Labor Day weekend, and Howard Strickling, the head of MGM's publicity department. Mayer ordered both men to go to Paul Burns' house. No one had called Jean, and of course, no one called the police. When Howard Strickling arrived at the Byrne house, he spotted the dead man's diary lying on a table. He flipped through the pages and found the final puzzling entry. It read, Dearest dear, unfortunately, this is the only way to make good the frightful wrong I have done you and to wipe out my abject humiliation. I love you, Paul. You understand, last night was only a comedy. When Louis B. Mayer arrived at the house, he wanted to get rid of the book, but Strickland stopped him. If it disappeared, the police might think that Jean had killed her husband. They left the book where it was so detectives would find it when they were finally called three hours later. What happened in the time between the MGM's executive's arrival and the police showing up? Well, that's anyone's guess. But when detectives arrived, they discovered a 38 in the dead man's hand. It had been recently fired. The cops found the note that had been written in the diary but didn't understand its meaning. It looked like suicide to them. Meanwhile, Irving Thalberg had tracked down Jean at her mother's house and finally broke the news about Paul's death. When the police came a short time later, Jean Bellow turned them away, saying that her daughter was, quote, too hysterical to undergo questioning at this time and that she'd been sedated by her doctor. News of Paul Byrne's death was soon reported in the press and, more importantly, was making the rounds of all the gossips in Hollywood. The next day, the powers in MGM decided that they needed to force Jean's mother to let the young woman talk to the police. Continued refusal would make the distressed movie star look bad to the public, who at that moment were blaming Jean for somehow causing Paul's suicide. Well, on Tuesday, detectives interviewed Jean, but she insisted, quote, there was nothing between us that would have caused him to do this. Well, Louis B. Mayer was on hand for the questioning and later conferred with Jean upstairs in her house. He later claimed that Jean became so distraught during their conversation that she tried to throw herself over a balcony, but he managed to stop her. On September 7th, MGM asked Tallulah Bankhead to replace the still inconsolable Jean in red dust, but she refused. An inquest followed soon after and the authorities began to piece together Paul Burns' final hours. Jean had stayed with her mother on Saturday night and then again on Sunday. She'd asked Paul if he wanted her to come home, but he told her he planned to stay up late reading scripts. She didn't hear from him again and assumed that he'd fallen asleep. She heard nothing else until being belatedly told on Monday afternoon that he was dead. Well, the inquest opened up a big can of worms, one the studio didn't want opened. One burning question was, what had Paul been referring to in the note when he wrote to Gene saying, quote, you understand last night was only a comedy. I thought Gene was at her mother's house. Did he meet someone else that night? Well, rumors spread that the crime scene had been tampered with, which was accurate thanks to the studio, but the gossip claimed Paul had been murdered. The inquest, though, said it was a suicide. But what was the reason? Well, the inquest stated he'd taken his own life for undetermined reasons. 
Now, there was a lot of speculation about Burns' comedy and suggestions about marital problems in the bedroom. Some believe that Paul was impotent or homosexual and had been unable to perform sexually with Jean. Others claimed he was physically unable to have sex because the necessary equipment was way too small. The comedy referred to in the note was Burns' attempt to overcome his problem, they said, and carry out his marital obligations artificially. Well, the night ended in disaster, the stories claimed, and Jean fled back to her mother's house. She refused to admit she was at home to spare Paul's reputation any further damage. By this time, though, Paul's brother Henry had arrived in L.A. and was angry about the rumors going around about Paul's sexual inadequacies. He insisted that the gossip was wrong. Paul Byrne had lived normally with another woman for many years. And here comes the big twist. That woman had vanished on the same day that Paul's body had been discovered, and she was found dead one week later. Her name was Dorothy Roddy, and under the stage name of Dorothy Millette, she had worked as a struggling actress in New York when Paul Byrne had met her. They had lived together in both New York and Toronto, and she often referred to herself as Mrs. Byrne. Under New York law at the time, living together transformed Dorothy into Byrne's common-law wife. Tragically, though, Paul's mentally unstable mother, who wanted to be the only woman in her son's life, committed suicide when she learned of her rival. Not long after, the guilt-stricken Dorothy was institutionalized after a nervous breakdown. Paul paid for all of her expenses. After he moved to L.A., he kept the information about Dorothy hidden from all but his closest friends. Those who did hear about her, including Jean, had no idea of the whole story. After being released from the mental hospital, Dorothy moved into the Algonquin Hotel in New York. She lived quietly, spending most of her time reading and walking in Central Park. Paul paid her a monthly stipend, sent occasional letters, and always visited her when he was in New York. In his 1920 will, he'd left everything he owned to Dorothy. However, this was changed in a later will, which gave his estate to Jean. Well, on March 17, 1932, Paul received a letter from Dorothy stating that she was moving to San Francisco. He suggested to her that she stay at the Plaza Hotel, which offered a, quote, attractive rate, and that if she did decide to stay somewhere else, he would, quote, find some way of supplying you with funds in a manner convenient for you. On September 6, the day after Paul died, Dorothy checked out of the plaza and boarded a river steamer that journeyed back and forth between San Francisco and Sacramento. An officer later found a woman's coat and shoes next to the ship's railing. Dorothy was not on board when the ship docked at Sacramento. Fishermen found her body one week later. Her death was ruled a suicide. On September 9th, a funeral was conducted for Paul Byrne at Inglewood Park Cemetery, with Jean sobbing through the entire service. Paul's body was cremated at its conclusion. Then on Monday, September 12th, Jean returned to work on the set of Red Dust, the studio having decided by this time that public sentiment had turned in her favor because, you know, the show, of course, must go on. Jean's career continued, but she didn't stay lonely for long. She soon started a not-at-all-discreet affair with the married boxer Max Baer, who not only killed a guy in the ring, but was the father of the actor who played Jethro on the Beverly Hillbillies. Bet she didn't know that. Anyway, to stop the gossip about the affair, Jean was quickly and very publicly married off to a convenient and cooperative cinematographer named Hal Rosen in 1933. She divorced him two years later and then started a two-year romance with MGM leading man William Powell. 
By 1937, Jean was one of the biggest box office draws in America. Her chemistry on screen with frequent co-star Clark Gable always managed to fill theater seats. They were teamed up for their sixth film, Saratoga, but on May 29th, in the middle of shooting, Jean collapsed on set. She was rushed to the hospital and diagnosed with uremic poisoning. Her kidneys were failing. In a time before dialysis, the condition proved fatal. She was cared for at home in Beverly Hills for the next few days, but on June 6th, she was rushed back to the hospital where she died the following morning. Jean was only 26 years old. Jean was buried in a private gated area of the Great Mausoleum in Forest Lawn Cemetery in Glendale. Although her phantom has never been seen by visitors, some have claimed to feel her presence there. But it's possible that's not Jean's ghost because she's still haunting somewhere else. Subsequent owners of Jean's Beverly Hills home have reported a lot of strange phenomena taking place over the years. According to an interview conducted by well-known ghost hunter Hans Holzer, dogs in the house seem to be affected most, growling and barking at a presence only they can see. These incidents usually occur in the upstairs room near the balcony where Jean attempted suicide. Lights turn on and off by themselves. The smell of perfume has been encountered and cold spots are sometimes felt in the dining room, the kitchen, and the bedroom. Owners have also heard soft, disembodied whispers, a woman crying, and footsteps that mysteriously pace around the house. And now and then, they say, they spot an apparition with platinum blonde hair. Neither Jean Harlow's death nor the passage of time stopped the speculation about the death of her former husband, Paul Byrne. About a year after the inquest, a grand jury investigation into District Attorney Byrne Fitz revealed some strange connections to the Byrne case. Fitz had been the DA who had handled Paul's case, and while the grand jury was looking into some of his office expenditures, some new information came up about the Byrne investigation. It turned out that Paul's gardener had told the police that he thought Paul's death was murder, quote, right from the beginning. He said that Paul and Jean got along well and that he never heard Paul talking about killing himself. He added he didn't believe the note left behind had been in Paul's handwriting. Well, this information wasn't in police files. In fact, they had a statement from Paul's butler that said the exact opposite of everything the gardener said. The butler's statement was also disputed by Irene Harrison, Paul's secretary. According to Irene, rumors about Paul stalking women were untrue and that Jean had been the pursuer in their relationship. She also added that she didn't think Byrne looked particularly happy at the reception after the wedding, for whatever that's worth. But most intriguing of the new testimony came from Winifred Carmichael, Paul's cook. She stated that the household staff had seen a strange woman at the house on Sunday evening. The cook stated that she heard an unfamiliar woman's voice followed by a scream. She also said that she later found a wet woman's swimming suit on the edge of the swimming pool and two empty glasses nearby. There's no record of whether the police ever checked the glasses for fingerprints or whether they even followed up on the testimony from the gardener who said that he told detectives about finding a small puddle of blood near Byrne's favorite chair by the swimming pool. It was interesting, but not enough to convince anyone to change the verdict of suicide. 
Well, then in 1960, former Chicago crime writer turned screenwriter Ben Hecht published an article that claimed Paul's death was definitely a murder. Hecht wrote, quote, Studio officials decided sitting in a conference around his dead body that it was better to have Paul burn as a suicide than as a murder victim of another woman. He wrote that it would be better for Jean's career that she not seem like a woman who couldn't hold on to a husband. But Hecht couldn't prove his allegations, and that story was buried again. In fact, it's still a mystery today, but one that remains intriguing. Could Paul Byrne have been murdered? And if so, who was the most likely killer? It could have been Jean, who only had the alibi of her mother, or it could have been the other woman in his life, Dorothy Millett. It's been suggested that Dorothy could have come to LA on the night before Labor Day to confront Paul about his marriage to Jean. If we follow this scenario, Jean might have been at the house that night and found Dorothy arguing with Paul, which might explain Paul's reference to a comedy. The women could have left the house, but what if one of them returned? Could Dorothy or Jean have murdered Paul and then arranged it to look like a suicide? Maybe, I mean, I guess. I mean, Dorothy being the killer is problematic. In 1932, the fastest transportation between Los Angeles and San Francisco was either the Southern Pacific Daylight Train or the Overnight Lark. Either method of transportation took almost 10 hours, and Dorothy was in San Francisco to check out of her hotel the next morning. For Dorothy to make it, she would have had to catch the 10 p.m. train, meaning that a cab would have had to have picked her up from Paul's isolated Benedict Canyon house by at least 8 p.m. However, no trace of any such call or taxi driver was ever found. But if Dorothy did kill Paul, was she the woman who was hurt in the house and left a wet swimsuit behind? If so, why did she bother to go all the way back to San Francisco after a 10-hour train ride, pack her things, board the boat, and after all that effort, commit suicide? If this was a crime of passion, why didn't she just kill herself right there next to the body of her dead lover? Unfortunately for movie fans, if Paul's death was a murder, Jean Harlow is a much more likely culprit. She could have become distraught over finding out the extent of Paul and Dorothy's relationship, returned to the house, and killed him. There are many who believe that Jean already knew that Paul was dead when Irving Thalberg arrived at her mother's house on Monday afternoon. So in this scenario, the note that was found in the book was intended to accompany flowers to Jean at her studio dressing room, but Paul was dead before any flowers could be ordered. And if Jean was the killer, there is absolutely no doubt that studio executives would have covered up for her if they even suspected that she was involved. Could that have been part of the reason they spent so much time at the crime scene before calling the police to make sure that anything that linked Jean to Paul's murder was gone? Or could there have been another woman involved? If not Dorothy, then who did the wet swimming suit belong to? The staff said they heard a woman's voice they didn't recognize, which seems to rule out Jean. Well, whose blood was on the tiles near the swimming pool? Who did the second glass belong to? Why was it never checked for fingerprints? These questions remain unanswered, and for many crime buffs, the death of Paul Byrne remains unsolved. Could this be why his ghost once appeared in the house at Benedict Canyon? It's possible that he made an appearance to protest the fact that his death was never adequately explained, but I don't believe that's the case. I believe his otherworldly appearance was meant as a warning, a premonition for another beautiful blonde actress that, if she'd understood what it meant, might have saved her life. That actress's name was Sharon Tate. Sharon had been born in Dallas, Texas in 1943, and for most of her childhood, she'd lived in one city after the next, wherever her father, an officer in the army, was stationed. 
Growing up, she entered a few beauty contests, but then around 1960, her family was sent to Verona, Italy, and while living there, she got extra work in films. She even appeared on a Pat Boone TV special that was filmed in Venice. On the set of a movie called Adventures of a Young Man, she met a handsome star named Richard Boehmer. They dated briefly, and Richard suggested that Sharon try her luck in Hollywood. Oh, when her family returned to the States, she called Richard's agent, who agreed to represent her. And before long, she was cast in an assortment of small roles and began modeling in print ads. In October 1964, Sharon went to a party at the famous Whiskey A Go-Go on the Sunset Strip, and it was there that she met Jay Sebring, a hairstylist with famous clients like Warren Beatty, Kirk Douglas, Steve McQueen, and Jim Morrison. Sharon and Jay hit it off immediately, and it turned out to be perfect timing. Sharon had just gotten out of a bad relationship and Jay was going through a divorce. Once his divorce was final in 1965, the couple got engaged. Sebring bought a dream house in Benedict Canyon from former MGM actress and dancer Sally Forrest. It had once belonged to an MGM executive named Paul Byrne. In fact, he died there and Jay knew it. In fact, he always worried that the house might be jinxed. He knew about Paul's suicide, but he also knew that two people had later drowned in the pool. Well, one night in 1966, Sharon stayed alone at Jay's house. Besides his studio in LA, he also had salons in New York and London, so he was frequently away on business. Sharon had stayed alone at the house many times, but on this particular night, she had a hard time getting to sleep. She said that she was awake in Jay's room with all the lights on and she was very uncomfortable, although she couldn't explain why. She felt funny, she later told reporter Dick Kleiner, and was frightened by every little sound she heard. Well, suddenly, a person that she described as a, quote, creepy little man walked into the bedroom. He was a small, compact man with dark hair and a mustache. He ignored Sharon and wandered about the room, apparently looking for something. Frightened, Sharon put on her robe and hurried out of the bedroom, afraid to look back. She was later convinced that the man she saw in the bedroom was Paul Byrne. Well, the ghost of Paul Byrne is scary enough, but what happened next is truly terrifying especially when we consider the events that would happen three years in the future. Sharon started down the stairs, but halfway down them froze in shock. There was a figure tied to the staircase posts at the bottom of the steps. She couldn't tell if it was a man or a woman. However, she could clearly see that the figure's throat had been cut. There was blood everywhere, but only for a moment. It was there long enough for Sharon to get a really good look at it. And then the apparition vanished. Shaken, Sharon went into the living room to pour herself a drink, but she couldn't find where Jay kept the alcohol. She felt an inexplicable urge to press on a section of the bookcase, and it opened to reveal a hidden bar. Well, as she reached for a bottle to pour herself a drink, she accidentally tore a small piece of wallpaper at the base of the bar. Well, she swallowed a strong glass of liquor and then went back to bed. In the morning, Sharon was convinced the whole episode had been a terrible nightmare until she went downstairs and saw the wallpaper that had been torn away from the bar. At that point, she realized she had actually seen the ghost of Paul Byrne, the so-called creepy little man. She had also unknowingly seen a vision of her own fate, a macabre message that turned out to be a too subtle of a hint to save her a few years later. Jay returned home the following day and she told him about the horrifying things she'd seen. Sharon never forgot the event, but she did manage to put it behind her. A short line later, she flew to London to work on the film Eye of the Devil, and while there, she met director Roman Polanski, and they fell in love. 
Sharon broke off her engagement with Jay, but he took the news well. He was never bitter, and he even became a close friend with Polanski and remained close to Sharon, too. In fact, it was Jay Sebring who died trying to protect Sharon on August 8, 1969. By then, Sharon was pregnant and just weeks away from delivering her baby. Roman was in London, and Jay was staying at their home on Cielo Drive with some other friends when all of them were brutally murdered by the Manson family. Sharon Tate became a victim of the most savage slayings in Hollywood history, but three years earlier, she had glimpsed a ghostly image of the horrific fate that awaited her, tied up, stabbed, and bleeding. Was it a fate that was shown to her by Paul Byrne? Perhaps, but why? Was Paul just trying to protect another young woman from her tragic death? During his short time with her, Paul had tried to protect Jean Harlow from her overbearing mother and steer her career in the right direction. But when Jean needed him, when her health was failing, Paul was already gone. Maybe he thought that if he could reach Sharon, her life wouldn't be cut short in the same way that Jean's was. But perhaps it was already too late. Perhaps Sharon's story had already been written and another beautiful blonde actress was simply destined to also die, just like Jean Harlow, at the age of 26. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language Better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words? Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets 
if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. For some reason, I mean, I'm sure it's fine. Yeah, you sound you sound fine in mine. Okay. And it looks like all right. Okay. Well, maybe it's just me. So. It's just one of those I'm days. Deaf as opposed to most <laughs> of the time, anyway. So, <laughs> all right, you ready? Uh, sure. Yeah. Good. Okay. Thanks for tuning into the American Hauntings podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. We are now in season five of the podcast, Haunted Hollywood. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hey, man. How's it going? Oh, it's going. I uh, <laughs> drove a lot, got a lot more yeah, driving. It's, it's been a, yeah. lot, a lot of back and forth. I have done, yeah, I have too. I mean, I guess I did too. Two yeah. weekends in a row, I did a lot of driving, but... Um, you know, Fourth of July, all that stuff. Yeah, you know. But did you have a good, good Fourth? Yeah, it was fine. Yeah, I mean, I was in Alton the night before talking about the Donner Party. Uh huh. Having dinner. Oh yeah. Oh, party. right. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was good. It was good. So you have all your fingers after yeah, Fourth and yeah. stuff. No, That's you, you don't goal. need to worry about me not coming back <laughs> in a hole. It's other people. So right, <laughs> right. Oh well. Okay. So it's July. Um. I feel like yeah. it's, it's it's going it's, fast too. Yeah, I mean we're almost like halfway through already, and by the time everybody hears this episode, we're going to be just like a little over a week away from the Haunted America conference. Finally, I know it's which is usually in June, but uh, we we bumped it back a month in 2021 to allow the people who aren't trying to kill the rest of us to get vaccinated before the event starts. Um, and they have, and so now it's almost here. And you know, after we had to postpone it last year yeah. for the first time in 24 years um but now it's it's happening and it's coming very soon so um it, it's been sold out for a couple of months but we do are going to have some tickets available to the door in fact if people go to if you're going to the conference go to the conference website and see some of the updates that i just posted at the top of the page if you didn't get signed up and wish that you had um, there's some information for you up there too, but if you're not able to come, we're going to be taking you behind the scenes a little bit with the podcast, in a special episode later this month. Um, it'll be our, our, um, our conference episode, which we normally do. And then, um, we'll be back for more Haunted Hollywood after that, as we kind of cruise toward the end of the season. Uh, uh-huh. I'll believe it when I No, see we are, we're the getting headlines. there. We're getting closer, slowly, slowly, <laughs> getting closer. We really are. <laughs> oh, man. Well, what else you got going well, on? Well, we have a lot of uh, some good stuff coming because it's now, you know, midsummer. Everything's thrown off because mm. I always expect the conference to be in June. You know, oh, it's supposed yeah, to be yeah. over now. Right. Uh, but everything's a little thrown off. So we're kind of getting back in the swing of that. But um, I'm excited because I actually have two brand new books out. 
Um, the first one, a big one and a small one. The okay. big one, the big one is the Hell Hath No Fury book that mm-hmm. I've been talking about for a while. The 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 thirteen spirits, the wicked and the wronged, all that. So yeah. uh, I've been really excited about this book. Um, it's out. Um, this is one of our most popular dinner events, and so finally now has a book to go along with it, with not the same stories that are usually I talk about at the event. And I'm gonna just keep changing that one up. It's mm-hmm. not going to always be the same event anyway, because I've got so many other stories and I plan to do more books in the series. <laughs> so there's so, enough crazy women out there. Yeah, oh yeah, there's saying. plenty. Yeah, there's plenty. Um, so the other book I did was called Horribly Mutilated. And the day that the Hell Hath No Fury came on sale, we gave away a hundred of those for free with the first hundred orders. I, I see the packages right yes, there. You've yes. been busy boy. Yeah, stuff's been moving. So um, anyway, that is what I call an extra book as part of the Dead Men Do Tell Tales series. A lot of times there are stories that I really want to write, but they're not, I mean, they don't really fit with anything else. Uh I mean, they don't fit in another book. They're not really a book by themselves. I mean, a real big title. Right. Um, So I decided to do these little kind of small books. They're only like eight bucks. I mean, they're little small books. Mm -hmm. And, um, I kind of, after we started doing The Morbid Curious, I started to look at other ways that we could do things like this. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just something kind of fun. So I'm just calling it an extra. Okay. And I uh, put that out too. This one, this this particular one is about um, Jack the Ripper, but not the one that anyone knows. Uh-huh. This is not the Jack the Ripper from England. This right. is the Jack the Ripper from Atlanta, Georgia, from the 19-teens. Ah. Um, and it's a story that most people don't really know anything about. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like the, um, you know, when I did that Victims of the Axe Fiend book about all those oh, murders yeah. that happened, you know, like 40-some people were murdered, but no one knows anything about the crimes because they were all like poor black people that were murdered. This yeah. is the same situation. These are all black or mixed race women from the teens mm-hmm. um, who were murdered. About 25 of them were murdered over about a 10 year period. Damn. But nobody talks about it. So it's just, it was, it's just an interesting story. Yeah. So, but anyway, so I've been working on uh, our schedule, Ghost of the River Road Tours, uh, which I'll be doing in the fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, one at least is already sold out. <laughs> We just put them on sale. Of course. Uh, One's already sold out. Others are getting close. Um, I did put up all the Dinner and Spirits events for the rest of the year. Um, You can find all that stuff. Dinnerandspirits.com is where that stuff is at. Mm -hmm. But I've got... You know, I've got those Hell Hath No Fury events, like I mentioned. We're going to have Edgar Allan Poe, St. Louis Exorcism, Lizzie Borden, um, doing an evening spirit photography about, you know, oh, ghost yeah, yeah. photographs and stuff. Um, the Limp family, uh, on October 30th, I'm doing that Sinister Hauntings thing again, uh-huh. and it's really filling up fast. I guess I picked the right date for that one. Yeah. But I'm also doing one that I think would appeal to you uh-huh. oh, called boy. American Axe Murders. Okay. And it's not just going to be Velisca or just the you know, the Texas Louisiana things, but it's going to be all of these different from that time period. All we and we talked about that quite a bit when we did our season on the axe murders. Yeah. We talked about you know how common axe murders were in the right. late 1800s and early 1900s. So and a lot of them have ghost stories attached to them and stuff. So it's just going to be a whole evening of that. Yeah. So that I don't is. know how great. I'm glad people will have eaten first, <laughs> but still, you know, it still should be fun. I thought so. you were going to say it was like a haunted children thing. Or <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to do one of those at some point because <laughs> I do have, have that book. But 
Um, anyway, the point is we have a lot of cool stuff that are coming. Um, you know, people who are vaccinated, again, who aren't trying to kill the rest of us by refusing to do something that millions of people have already done with absolutely no bad effects. But that's okay, whatever. You know, I know people get mad at me for harping on this <laughs> stuff do. between, well, like three, yeah. uh, between you no know, masks and vaccinations and stuff. But really, I mean, when 99.5% of the people who die are unvaccinated, that yeah. should tell you something. You know yep. what I mean? Who are still dying from something that should have been gone a long time ago. Yeah. But we have gotten this, We over the last few years, we have become this country where we just don't give a shit about anybody but ourselves and how it affects just us. And so, you know, you get people who just refuse to get, for no reason other than people want them to. Yeah. That's pretty much what it boils down to. Yeah. You know, is that, well, you're not going to tell me what to do. Yeah, that's kind of like you're the same people that wouldn't wear a mask and see how that worked out. It was so great. You know, I just don't understand why people just can't do it. Don't people want their lives back? I don't, I don't understand I don't it. Know. it and now really we've got, you know, we got a variant that's running and it's the like, Delta variant. Yeah. and it's like, you know, how much, how much more incentive do you need to just go get a damn shot? I don't know. I mean, you know, do you want to die? I mean, do you want to, and the thing is they're going to kill other people. Yeah. And, and in the beginning we used to say, it was one of the things I always said, you know, this is nobody's fault and there's nothing, it's nature. There's not, you know what? Now it is their fault Yeah. because by not getting vaccinated, they're causing this to spread. And as this stuff keeps twisting and turning and becoming something else, it's going to start fighting through the vaccines if we don't get a handle on it. Plus, they're going to kill all the little kids. Yeah. Because now they're 24% of the new hospitalizations are, are kids who aren't old enough to be vaccinated. So mm. if you don't mind, you know, if you like to kill children and, uh, you know, just feel free <laughs> to just keep ignoring it. But anyway, whatever. You anyway, people who are, I know, and I said I wouldn't, but you yeah, know what? People right. who are vaccinated are getting out doing stuff. Um, we're having fun. Um, I'm having fun. I've had a blast this summer. We're going to have a blast this fall. Yeah. It's going to be great. We got tons of great events. And I honestly, I can't wait. I love doing this stuff. Uh, I love to get out and finally get to talk to people again. Uh, that we used to would only look at them through our Zoom things, right. you know, and, you know, I'll, and I'll do some of that stuff, too, because we have a lot of people who can't travel, who don't get you get a chance to, you know, can't come to Illinois to take, you know, go on a tour or whatever, or go to one of these events. I'll keep doing the on online stuff. It's fun, mm -hmm. you know, just like this is going to be anyway. Keep an eye on the social media stuff. Um, don't send Cody the hate mail uh, about it. I mean, if you if you're so ballless that you want to put up a review and mad because Troy, you know what? Just send it directly to me. There you go. Because I'd just love to hear your excuse because you don't have one that's you know, valid. I'm, I'm not going to read them on the show anyway. No, we're so. not anyway. So anyway, AmericanHauntings.net. Um, you can go on social media. I got all the pages. You, you most of you know where they are. There There's go. new books. There's you know new stuff. There's things that are happening. So anyway, um, you know, I just I, I think, though, I mean, honestly, I think the majority of our readers are smart or listeners are smart enough anyway. So I don't think that's why we don't get a lot of flack, you know, yep. we, you know, but and maybe yep. I will. Who cares? You know, write, I know it's a free show. Write a review. I hope you enjoy it. If you so. write a review where you're mad about what Troy just said and you don't have any grammatical errors. Yeah, I'll, right. I'll right. give you a dollar. Hey, yeah. I watched Tombstone for the first time. What? You've I know. Never seen it. I've never seen Tombstone. Oh man! All your wire talk. I had. Yeah. To well, check I got that event coming. Up, I know. So. I know. It I was great. 
it's a great movie. It's, it's a, a great fantastic movie. movie. And it is, I mean, there's, you know, any, any movie about history has got some, you know, dramatic license, uh-huh, but sure. honestly, it's a lot more accurate than people know. Yeah. I mean, most people think it really is. There's a lot of that stuff that really happened. Mm-hmm. Not like the final shootout with, you know, Johnny Ringo, but uh-huh. still, you know, he did die mysteriously. We don't know who killed him. Oh, so, oh okay. All right. Yeah. We'll tune into uh, yeah, Troy's event to find out more. Uh, did you ever watch the, did you end up watching the Tomorrow War? Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> what did you think? <laughs> I think they made a really smart choice by not releasing it in theaters. <laughs> I mean, it was okay for what it was. I, I mean, it, it was fun. It was a really pop- cool monster. It was a popcorn movie and it was fun, yeah. you yeah. know, but I mean, uh, the, I don't know. I, I already, mean, Chris Pratt's a pretty good actor, but not in that. Yeah. I just like, he was just so stiff and it wasn't funny. It wasn't you know, funny. things that were supposed to be funny weren't funny. I, I don't know. It, I didn't hate it. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was enjoyable. Yeah. It was a good way to spend a couple of hours. I, well, I've never want to watch it again. Yeah. But it was, it was okay. They're pretty close to green light and second one too. I've already oh. been talking about it. So I guess it's doing well. Jeez. Yeah. 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 Probably is. Oh man. Yeah. Those are the two movies I, I wanted wow. to talk to you about. Um, Ouch. And I watched The Founder, too, but that's different. But I enjoyed that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's dive into some listen- some positive listener reviews while we still have them real oh, quick. Oh, yeah. Uh, this one is titled Great Research and Commentary, and it's from Halloween 15. Finally, one I can just read easy. Yeah, right. Um, it says, I can't believe I didn't try this show earlier. Great escape from the stress of everyday life and current issues. That's surprising to me because this show actually stresses me out all the time. On a, every I basis. stress you out, I think. That, so. that too. But uh, yeah, thank you for the review. This next one's called Love the Show. Also a note coming a bit dot, dot, dot. And it cuts off so I can't read what the rest of that title said. But it said, I just started listening a couple weeks ago with season five and just caught up. I'm impressed with the research that goes into each episode. I was very pleased when you shot down the George Hodel theory in the Black Dahlia case. <laughs> These are very educational. Cody seems to learn something. Uh, every episode parentheses a little tongue in cheek uh, now the late note after finishing the regular episodes I listened to the bonus episodes the learn from history don't repeat it episode was exceptionally well done Troy I doff my hat to you sir R.W. Rhea um, I'm a little offended that you think uh, it's only a little tongue in cheek because I go out of my way to be obnoxious um, and that's, that's from uh, R.W. Rhea 22 so thank you so much um, and this last one's Titled Limp Episodes. It says, absolutely fantastic. So much information. Oh, I thought they were saying the episodes were oh, limp. Yeah. You know, okay. Now I get it. You know, oh, I didn't even, maybe they are. No. It says, you guys are incredible. Great job. Seriously, who puts who puts this much time into their informed stories? So impressive. That's from Coco, oh, Coco Chanel Girl. Okay, got it. That's my bad. Um, yeah, so thank you very much for those reviews. I really appreciate it. Are you ready to dive in? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Took me a minute with all these names to figure out who was who, but I think I've got it now. Uh, I had to go back. <laughs> oh, over because it. I kept using her real name until I finally yes. start when she changed her name. Yes. Well, it just seemed like the no, way you to know, do it. Hey, it so, made sense. You know, uh, just in my head, I was like, Wait gotcha. So no, I understand. Who? So Har- Harleen yeah. Harlow Carpenter, a.k.a. Gene Harlow. Harlow. Yeah. Okay. Gene Harlow, born comedian. A personal life was, although filled with tragedy, including the mysterious death of her second husband, who died under very strange circumstances in 1932. So she's born March Just 3rd. Really, this whole point to this entire story. Yeah. In one line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Basically. So we're done. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's it. She's, I hope you guys enjoyed it. She's born in Kansas City. Uh, father Harlow. Uh, father is Harlow. Mother is Jean. No, her father no. was Montclair Carpenter, and he was a dentist. Oh, and her what? mother, her mother Jean Harlow, uh-huh. 
Jean Harlow. And mm-hmm. so she took her mother's right. maiden name. Okay, sorry. Maybe yes. it's my notes that messed me up and not you, or maybe both. Well, uh, I think that me, I think it, I, me putting Harleen in there for so long and then switching it to Jean threw you off. Okay. Because her mother is also Jean. And I tried not to say her uh-huh. name. I always tried to refer to her as her mother. <laughs> okay. Or, you know, so that it would not get confusing for anyone, including you. Right. Okay. So. I appreciate it. Uh, mission failed. Um, so after divorce, <laughs> Harleen and Jean moved to Hollywood, hoping to get lucky in the movies, but no dice. So they go back to Missouri because if they didn't, then her mother, Jean, would have been written out of her father, Skip's will. Harlow will. Yeah, he was okay. a really prominent real estate guy. Uh-huh. So she came in, and unlike so many of these other actors who came from nowhere yeah. and, you know, nothing, she had a really wealthy family. Uh-huh. So, and then, you know, when she married that guy, Charles Fremont McGrew II. With a perfect he, name. Who also had a lot of money. Her, she didn't have to go into acting she did it because she wanted to wasn't it almost like a bet pretty much from her yeah, friends yeah yeah friends like, said oh you'll never do it and so she's like wow i'll show you yeah I'll show and then you. used her mom's name which with her mother i think that seems like a bad idea you know i don't yeah it does. i mean i can just see her mom can't you see her mom like writing checks and things using oh yeah <laughs> you know what i mean i mean hey, well re- it is my name really? you know and i mean because these people are a bit sketchy relationships with mothers can be complicated yeah you know? <laughs> it's true this um, is true so yeah because they move out to la and then the mom and stepdad come out like, yeah. trying to freeload uh-huh. off of them and sure. off of that success uh, you said in those days it wasn't seen as socially acceptable to be in the entertainment industry well, not, not for not a in, woman at least. Is not in that not in that not in her social okay, circle. Okay, right. Because they were rich. I mean, because they that. were rich. And so, you know, when you've got these rich people living in Beverly Hills, you know, unless you were an actor and bought a house in Beverly Hills because of all the money you made as an actor, mm-hmm. to go the other direction oh, is kind of oh, okay. you know, kind of questionable. Uh-huh. So well, that's kind of lame. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I guess her husband feels what similar because eventually she has to choose between him and her career, um, and she chooses the career. <laughs> yeah. Good fucking riddance uh, yeah. for that. But now she's single, supporting well, her mother. She seems and step to bounce brother. around a lot. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> you so, notice that? You know, yeah. I yes. mean, I like her. She was, and she's in some really great movies. But yeah, she she does bounce around between men quite a bit. Right. So. Yeah. Well, you know, good for her. <laughs> uh, her big break came to, thanks to billionaire Howard Hughes's fascination with Hollywood. He signs her to a five-year contract because he's going to re- and eventually he's immediately going to remake Hell's Angels with sound. Right. And this sends her to stardom. Uh, so I'm curious when they when they would do they sign people. I would assume they sign people to movie like three movies. And it would years, be a or has deal. It, 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 you know that it's it was done a little differently back then. Like you would sign a, a contract with a studio. Let's say you signed on with you know Paramount, and th- that's the only people you could make movies for. And it would either be a so many picture deal, mm-hmm. which is more like it how it is now. Yeah. Or you just signed on for like a three year contract and then you make as many movies as they tell mm. you to make during that three years. That's more how it was back then. Gotcha. And then when the time is up, they'll either renew your contract or, you know, a lot of times you can renegotiate. Let's say you become the shoot star and they, you know, a lot of times would renegotiate or you get loaned out to another studio. Let's say you work for Paramount, but RKO wants to do a picture with you. So they pay the studio and you have to go work at RKO. Ah. So it's, you know, Gotcha. That that's when it was the studio system, and that you know that all gets broken by the fifties and sixties. Mm-hmm. But early on, it was. I mean, they had a hold on everything, you know. And at that time, 
they own their own movie theaters and all, we talked about that when we were doing you know the the theater stuff right talking about the way the studios were and that kind of thing so gotcha okay um was platinum blonde a thing before this i'm curious about when that came um around. i don't you know i'm not sure where that if that was something that they invented for her but that's definitely what they that was the nickname they gave her. Uh-huh. If you find some photos I did, of yeah. Jean, yeah. I mean, her hair is like white. Yeah. And But that was a look. And, you know, it probably wasn't as white as what we see because all the pictures are black and white. Right, right, right. So it probably was a little more blonde than white, but it was definitely super light. And mm-hmm. it became so popular that women all over the country were just bleaching the shit out of their hair. And I mean, which could be dangerous because back then when you bleached your hair, you were actually using bleach. Oh boy. And so it was, you know, there, it wasn't clear all the stuff you bought at the grocery store. You had to figure out how you were going to do it. Mm. And they were just leaching all the color out of their hair to look like Gene Harlow. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. I did the same thing with Eminem in seventh grade. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. You know, lots of people did. And I'm already blonde. Yeah. Uh, Well, so while shooting Hell's Angels, uh, 18 year old Gene met a 40-year-old MGM producer named Paul Byrne. said it would have been hard to find two people more incompatible than Gene Harlow and Paul <laughs> Byrne. Most of Byrne's uh, contemporaries considered him a genius, although a rather strange one. So let's talk about this uh, strange little man here. He's born in Germany as Paul Levy. Uh, had dreams of going into psychiatry, but when his father passed away, he had to support his family. Uh, which kind of baffles me. So, like, he does, does that by stage yeah, acting. And I know, uh, right? like that. And ends up... But I, then he ends up going to school yeah. or, you know, college for it. And, you know, it works as an actor, but mostly works as like a producer and a writer and mm-hmm. a stage manager. And of course changed his name, which was common at the time, Yeah, you know, to something that a little less ethnic than Levy, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> you know, so got it. Um, he moves up to second in command at yeah. MGM. Though. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I think the guy was, you know, really great at what he did. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think that he, really had a great career as a producer and a writer and that kind of thing. He was just, he just kind of an odd duck. Yeah. I mean, he just had a lot of weird, you know, and you can't always go by everything you read about Hollywood and a lot of rumors and things went around and a lot of gossip ends up in print and things. And so you, you don't really know, but the odd thing about him is just that, that if you see a picture of the two of them together, yeah, it's like, I mean, they are night and day. I Very mean, much. it's like, what in the world? I mean, it just, no one could wrap their head around it. And it's it's even now, it's even still hard to understand. And, you know, we think a little differently than people did in the 30s as far as, you know, looks and, and, and that kind of thing. And, you you know, people are much more apt these days to realize that they're maybe more under the surface than uh-huh. just looks. But even so, I mean, he's just an... A creepy little man. I mean, that's just what, you know, I don't think Sharon was completely off and how she referred to him. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I'm, and I'm curious too, because you talked about, you know, rumors he had issues with women, but also a reputation for being sensitive, compassionate. And it kind of goes back and forth. Like, Mm -hmm. what do you think? Do you think it was both just because he's a weird guy? Yeah. No, I think he, I, I think, Honestly, I think he probably gets a kind of a bad rap. Okay. I mean, you know, that's what I'm saying. I, I you know, they don't look they don't look compatible at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he probably got a bad rap because and there has been some speculation about that that he may have been gay. And right. back then, you I mean, you could not come out and admit to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one did. And so a lot of studios would set, you know, uh, gay actors, um, men and women 
up with people that they could marry as a beard, right. you know, because they had to, you know, keep up this. I mean, the studios, other actors and things would know, you know, and sure. it would be a, a secret that would be kept from the public because the public could not handle information like that at the time. Yeah. But for them to go out and do these things, they always they had to have a, a woman with them or, you know, and it's very possible that he just didn't want to admit it, you mm -hmm. know, and so he would pursue these, you know, impossible women. You know, he kept sure. he kept going after women that, you know, like, you know, you know, I talked a little bit about Joan Crawford and Barbara mm -hmm. Lamar with her drug addiction. He would always go after these unattainable women and it would seem stalkerish and strange. But I think it was maybe and this is just a maybe, but it may have been more out of desperation, mm. you know, to to keep up a good front. Sure. You know, and that may I mean, I, I'm going to say he probably liked Jean. Jean liked him. Yeah. I mean, she's the one who pursued him, according to most people. And um, we don't know, we'll, we'll never know about their private life as far as what was going on, but obviously something was, yeah. you know, and he did have this, as we find out later, this woman in his past that he had spent a lot of time uh -huh. with too, that he'd been supporting. And so it's, I don't know, you know, I don't think we'll ever know for sure, which is kind of what makes all this so confusing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man. All right. Well, let's talk about this um, marriage story. And then I went back later and added slash death story uh, yeah, once right. I got further into it. So Jean's filming Red Dust, which is delayed, leaving her and Paul um, in his isolated home. She wanted to sell the house. He didn't. Um, and I'm wondering, like, maybe talk about these types of things before you get married, you know? Um, you know, <laughs> right. Also, surprise me, maybe, like, you know, also sleep with someone before you get mm -hmm, married. Just mm -hmm. test the waters a little bit, you yeah, know? Yeah. Uh, but again, all this stuff. But again, said, see, yeah, that uh, makes you kind of wonder. Yeah. So. Uh, Paul begins to get more and more depressed, drinking, worrying his new wife's unhappy, which I'm sure is just a vicious cycle that kind of goes. But then around. her talking about adoption. Yeah. You know, was another thing that's kind of indicated a, a, an odd flag, uh -huh. you know, as far as what's what's not, happening. It's not working. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, so they they don't stay with or see each other on September 2nd or 3rd, Friday and Saturday. On Monday the 5th, uh, the help find Paul's nude body in front of a full length mirror in Jean's dressing room in a pool of blood drenched in her perfume with a bullet in his head. No one calls Gene or the police, but they called everyone else. Uh, pretty it much. Like. Well, they called the studio. Well, right. at first they called Gene's mother, Mom, but yeah. then she called the studio because, I mean, we've seen this how many times before sure. in different things we've talked about over the years, but especially when it comes to Hollywood and especially in the 1930s, mm -hmm. I mean, who had more power in the city than it, than anyone, I mean, than the studios, right. no one, yeah. not the police, not no one, not the underworld even wasn't as powerful as the studios were at the time, Damn, you know? So yeah, that's, that's what happens. You send out your, you know, security chief and your, and the head of the publicity department <laughs> yeah, out of course. to the house of so course. that they can go through everything and find out if there's anything that's going to look bad for Gene right. and the studio. Yeah. You got to make it look good. As good as you can. Yeah. Uh, they find his diary. The last entry reads, Dearest dear, unfortunately, this is the only way to make good the frightful wrong I have done to you. I've done you into wipe out my abject humiliation. I love you, Paul. You understand last night was only a comedy. I think I'm going to start using that last line just in everyday life. <laughs> uh, and just see, just, I, I feel like it could apply to a lot of things, especially with how ambiguous it is in this story, yeah, too. Uh, I feel like it, well, yeah, exactly. We don't have any idea what it means. So, so just I'm going to let other people just keep it up to their own interpretation. But uh, uh, Mayor wants to get rid of the book. Strickling stops him, says he wanted the detective to find it so they wouldn't suspect Gene. 
which I think is probably smart. Yeah, I think so too. Um, but yeah. as I'm trying to think and just trying to be PR <laughs> and all this, uh, yeah. Uh, so who knows what happened in the three hours before they actually called the detectives. Uh, the news of the death quickly spreads. Detectives finally talk to Jean so it doesn't look like she's hiding something. She says there's nothing between us that would have caused him to do this. Mayor says that Jean later became distraught and tried to throw herself over a balcony. So, ugh. There's yeah. a lot, lot to unpack and a lot. Yeah, there lot is. And yeah. And I tried to unpack it all of the best I could. Yeah. I mean, there's just too many things that we'll never know. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one's ever really going to know what happened, you know, whether he did kill himself or whether someone killed him. We're never going to know. Right. If, if you had to ask my opinion, yeah, yeah, I think he shot himself. I think he committed suicide. And I think for all the reasons that I, mm-hmm. you know, was talking about, I think his life was just such a mess mm-hmm. and such a, you know, he was in just such a state of, you know, and I think it's very possible that that other woman showed up and you got caught. And I don't know. I'm not even I'm not even sure she did. I you know, I really am not. I because it seems very odd to me that she could have made. Well, and I talk about that. She couldn't. It had been very difficult for her to have made it back to San Francisco the next sure. day. It's just too far. And so I, I don't think that he got caught. I don't even think Gene was there. I think that's what shook her up so much as I don't think she was there either. Mm. I think that I think he killed himself um, because of his confusion over, you know, his own life. Yeah. You know, and um, he just realized that he could not deal with, you know, being who he was in a in the 1930s in Hollywood. I just, I, that's, I think it's a sad ending to the story, but I, I do worry that that's probably what happened. What do you think about the blood by the pool? Well, it could be anything, yeah. you know, and they said, and the wet swimming suit. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know, you know, but see, some of that stuff is, again, still questionable because that only came from one person. Mm-hmm. And then somebody else said something completely the opposite. So I, I don't know. I, I don't think it was ever investigated properly. Um, sure. I really don't. But I think, like no, and I think that the reason for that was is, Nobody wanted to make the studio look bad mm-hmm. or make Gene look bad. So, you know, everybody, they swept everything under the rug. And, right. you know, I'm going to say that, you know, Irving Thalberg and Louis B. Mayer probably knew more about Paul than we do for sure. And I think they probably wanted it hushed up, uh-huh. you know, and didn't want it to affect, you know, Gene's career. Uh, and yeah. it would have, I mean, it would have, if, you know, if he'd been murdered, that would have looked bad. If he committed suicide, and that's what they decided that it was, but they never released a reason. Even mm-hmm. if they knew what the reason was, they never released it. And uh, I think whatever the reason was must have been bad enough in Hollywood in 1932 that it wasn't something that you wanted to talk about. Sure. So yeah, I mean, yeah, you don't 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 want the wallet to get light. I yeah, guess, you know? right, exactly. Uh, boy. Okay, well, so Paul Paul's brother Paul's brother Henry had arrived in L.A. and was angry about the rumors going around because he said Paul lived normally with another woman for years, um, and that woman went missing the same day Paul's body's discovered and was dead, found dead one week later. So that just the plot thickens. It's just yeah, it's just a weird situation because she was a secret. Well, not to everybody, but. Um, to most people. Mm-hmm. And so you find out that he's, you know, been supporting her all this time. And technically in New York, right. they were married uh-huh. because they lived together law. a common law. So, I mean, technically his marriage to Jean probably wasn't 
completely legal. Oh, yes. You know, so, I mean, it's a mess. And, you know, and she's obviously mentally unstable. Yeah. I mean, she'd been in an insane asylum for years. And that was a big thing with him, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mentioned that when I was, you know, doing the story is that he had always feared that he had inherited his uh, mother's mental instability. Right. And he may have a little bit. Relationships you know? with mothers. I know. We're back to that again. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, but then, you know, they find her dead a week later. Mm-hmm. And... You know, it's um, nobody really knows what to say. And within the time that her body is found, Jean's back to work. Yeah. Sure. Because the show's got to go the on, man. Go so, on. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, okay. So, she, yeah, so she, after she goes back to work, she starts a not so secret affair with a, bo- with a boxer who killed a guy in a ring. Yeah. Max Bear. Yeah. Have you ever seen Cinderella Man, that movie with uh, Russell Crowe? Uh, it's about a boxer I during the, the depression. Name, but I, I don't think I've seen um, it. I'm trying to think of James. Um, what was his name? Anyway, I like the movie. It's, uh-huh. I mean, it's not completely accurate, but it's Braddock, James Braddock. Okay, but it's a pretty good movie. But um, Max Bear, he fights Max Bear, and and the guy he did kill somebody in the ring. But he's also. Damn. But my favorite part of it is that he's. Jethro's dad from the Beverly Hills. Oh, Hill yes. That's my favorite part <laughs> of did. the story you is when you that. see Max Bear and then you think he was this like this vicious boxer that was, you know, really a heavyweight champ for a while. Mm-hmm. And then his his son is Jethro. <laughs> so yeah. Jethro Bodine. So. Oh, boy. Uh, to stop the gossip about the affair, she marries Hal Rossin, a yeah. cinematographer. She divorced him two years later. It started a two-year romance with MGM leading man William Powell. William Powell, the uh, from the Thin Man movies. Yeah, which the, those are great. I haven't seen the them, first but I've, two. I've, I know are my who favorites. he is, but yeah, William Powell is great. Oh, he, so the, the first two are the way to go. They're the best ones. Okay, yeah, they're, they're the, my favorites. The other ones are fun, but those are my favorites. Got so. it. Okay, yeah, I'll be sure. I'll be sure to check those no, out. I'll put them won't. on my list when we get. If you just uh, now getting to watch Tombstone, well, say, after I'm, all these years. once we get through what what they're, we're doing the eighties this Halloween. Or yeah, something. well, the Thin Man is not a horror movie, so oh, we'll probably never watch. Oh, it. okay, never mind. Yeah, no, didn't we already do the eighties? I think we're doing the seventies. I can't. I can't keep track of what yeah, we're doing I anymore. I think we did the eighties. We'll figure it because out because we did. Um, we did. Um, shit. Oh, I thought we just did the Return 90s. of the Living Dead. No, we did the eighties. Yeah, we've done the 80s already. All right. So. Well, I guess we're no. just tearing through some decades. Yeah. Uh, anyway, by 37, uh, she's Jean's a huge box office draw. Uh, Clark Gable, eh? That's yeah, nice. did a bunch of movies together. Nice. Yeah. She eventually collapses because her kidneys are failing, and she dies a few days later on June 6th. Yeah. And see, at 20, she's only 26. Damn. And she died, and she was a huge star. And if she had lived now, she'd, you know, would have lived for years mm-hmm. because she could have got dialysis, but it didn't exist at the time. Right. So. You know, oh, well, R.I.P. Um, owners of Jean's former home reported strange things and dogs seem to be affected the most. Did we talk about this before or is it just? A, no, it's a, dog yeah, thing? it's it's been in it's in a lot of stories. OK, you'll hear about dogs being affected yeah. by hauntings. They, you know, I mean, they hear things the rest of us can't, mm, you know, sure. so um, it's kind of like children and dogs uh-huh. seem to. <laughs> Be on a different wavelength than adults. Well, I think we've talked about it. If I don't like you in the first impression, I might give you a second chance. But if my dog doesn't like you, I'm like, what are you hiding? Uh Uh-huh. Uh, and so now and then the lights turn off and on perfume smell cold spots whispers cry footsteps all that kind of stuff now and then they say they spot an apparition with platinum blonde hair i would like this yeah you know, right you know what right. i'm saying that's see, the kind of haunting that ghost. would be okay yeah yeah, yeah I, i'd be fine with that she, i mean she's she was beautiful yeah miss she was a knockout she, you know uh, yep, she looked good yeah she looked good uh, but what happened to paul Byrne? so d.a um buren fitz 
yeah. uh, find some strange connections. Um, this is the well when they were investigating the DA, right, 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 right. right. <laughs> they found some weird stuff and some, you know, some again, all the stuff we talked about. It's it's all these witnesses who come forward who gave statements to the police and the police never kept any record of it, probably because they didn't believe them. Uh But see, that's where you get into the, we don't, we're never going to know what happened because one person says one thing. One person says the exact opposite. One says, Oh, they fought all the time. The other one says, Oh, they never fought. You know, Oh, there was a woman here. No, there wasn't. You know I mean? It was, that's why we'll never really know. I mean, you can shade all of this stuff any way you want to, to make it sound like more of a conspiracy because really honestly, I dug into this because I think it's an interesting story and presented it to everybody to just to, to keep the mystery alive. But honestly, in, in my opinion, it it's a little, it's pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. I think he killed himself and left a note that it was very ambiguous. And so, you know, there have been sleazy gossip stuff written about all these, all this stuff because it leaves it open for it. Right. You know, the whole, the whole thing leaves it open for, you know, to come up with a mystery or a conspiracy, you know, did Dorothy kill him? Did Jean kill him? You know, I mean, Jean's more of a suspect than Dorothy because there's, I just don't think there's any way Dorothy could have come to LA and got back to San Francisco the next day. But I honestly don't think Jean killed him either, but she certainly is a better suspect. Right. She could have. Right. Let's put it that way. But I don't think she did. Yeah. She had, yeah. She'd have the opportunity more than Dorothy. Right. But no motive. Right. What would be the motive? Yeah. So, well, okay. You ruined one of my jokes. I was going to say, I was going to say the gardener said the gardener and the butler and the cook. I know. What what is this clue? I know with the candlestick and a rope in the conservatory. God. I know. So glad I didn't make that terrible joke. Um, I mean, okay, so yeah, like you said, we can't really keep things straight, but you know, somebody thinks they see a woman in the house, hear a voice, a scream, a bathing suit, empty glasses, who really knows? What else is there to really say? Um, Other than... This ghost Paul story. at least showed up one more time he does, after he died. As possibly a warning. So yeah, so let's let's wrap this up with the Sharon Tate thing. So we mentioned her in our in our last episode. Yeah, well, um, yeah right. Yeah, she, she, she played was, a small role. Yeah, she was kind of murdered Ooh. in the last one. So I thought she deserved a little more time. Because yeah. Because Sharon yeah. deserves more time. I like this. That, so okay, so. well, I, I I don't like this, but you know what I mean. Yes. Um, I'm glad we brought her back. So born in Dallas in 1943, uh, she's an army kid. Enters a few beauty contests, eventually moves to Verona, Italy, did some work in film and TV on some show there. Yeah. Um, dated Richard Bamer, Bamer finally, yeah. briefly. Yeah, he suggested Hollywood. Uh, it worked. She, yeah. she meets yeah. Jay Sebring in 64. They marry in 65 once his divorce is done. Sebring. No, won- they just got engaged. They didn't get Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. Oh, right. Because she breaks off the engagement to go right, with, to, Polanski. with Polanski. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Know, okay. Right. Uh, he was fine back then, right? Uh, we didn't, we, he was like, <laughs> right, he was, yet. right, exactly. Okay, exactly. Uh, so Sebring buys his dream house, but again, uh-huh. but again, yeah, yeah, there's a weird combo. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, Jay Sebring, too, a little bit, uh, but not nearly as much as Polanski did, who is kind of a wormy little guy, in I my know. opinion. And I'm not even talking about post Manson Polanski, I'm talking sure. about Polanski ever. I, is kind of a weird little dude. Um, if if you're a woman yeah. that's into really weird but small see, guys, yeah, exactly. <laughs> tweet but, at us. but see, I know. But see, here you go though. This is a there is an incompatible as Gene and Paul Byrne. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's just the 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 odd, you know, 
comparisons here mm-hmm. between the couples, in my opinion, anyway. I yeah, so, I, maybe it's a Hollywood thing, man. Uh, maybe I don't no. know because I mean, if you saw what you did, but yeah. you saw um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, yes, and you remember, you know, Steve McQueen uh-huh. is in it, uh, you know, uh, is you know in love with Sharon, but. He's like, you know, she, this is this is what she likes. These mm-hmm. little guys, these weird little guys, right? Like Polanski and Jay Sebring. So, yeah. <sighs> I don't know, man. Uh, anyway, so Sebring has the house um, that once belonged to Paul Byrne. He died there, and eventually, you said two more people like drowned in that pool. That's what Jay always had oh, said. Okay. I mean, I don't know if that's accurate. I I haven't seen anything that backs that up. But right, that was his version of the story. Is that that he always worried that the house was jinxed Jinx, because of that? Yeah, you know, so. he probably just had a crazy party and they were just passed out. And like, <laughs> Dead. They'll be up later. Hungry enough to eat up everything in your house. Um, so she awake. She wakes up one night when she's alone. She freaks out. Sees a creepy little man walk into her bedroom, but he just kind of seems to walk around as if he's looking for something. Kind of ignores her. But then she runs down the stairs, sees a figure tied to the staircase post, uh, its throat cut and blood everywhere, but just for a moment, and then it vanishes. She She's stumbling around looking for a drink, pretty much, yeah. to take the edge off like we all would be. Finds a hidden bar and a bookcase, but ends up tearing off a small piece of wallpaper at the base of the bar, which is basically what can Which is only next, important because then when she the next looks day. the next day and finds that it was torn, it means that she didn't dream the whole thing. Yeah. It really happened. Uh, I think I'd be wide awake enough to like not want to go back to that bedroom. Uh, me either. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought too. Yeah, uh, she eventually, like I said, meets Polanski, breaks up the engagement with Jay, but he's still cool about it. Um, probably too cool about it. I'm gonna tell. Uh, you, so I'm gonna agree with that. Sometimes one. being a dick can save your life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's um, that too. But, but yeah, probably. Too yeah, cool I have about always it. thought he was a little too clingy after yeah. they broke up. I mean, it's like he. I I always got the the vibe. From the story uh-huh. is that he kept hanging around, became friends with Polanski and stuff and kept hanging around just in case. Uh, just, in you know case what I mean? Just in case burner. things ever went bad, you know, he'd be there. Oh. He'd be there to pick up the pieces for the shoulder to cry on. That, yeah. that was always my vibe. Gotta have thing. But on the other hand, he did. He do tried his best to try to protect you know, Sharon. You know what? So, That's true. I'll, you stop, know, I'll stop. So I'll give him that. Him. Yeah. You know, so. Uh, so to wrap it up, said Sharon Tate became a victim of one of the most savage slayings in Hollywood history. But three years earlier, she had glimpsed a ghostly image of the horrific fate that awaited her, tied up, stabbed, and bleeding. Yeah, God, I know. So I'm happy we can end on a, a happy note. Um, that's all I well, got. <laughs> I uh, just want okay. to yeah. <laughs> not a, not a happy note. No, um, I know. Yeah, I uh, just wanted to give a couple shout outs uh, to some new patrons that we have. So thank you for supporting the show uh, to Richard, Michael, Chelsea, Barbara, and John. Uh, your your support really helps us keep doing what we're doing. It is now time for our Ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, you can email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail Okay, Troy. So this one. This ghostwriter, it's only one um, because it's a little bit of a long one. Okay. But it's from Renee. And so I I have to read it because I love Renee. So it says, hi, Cody. And she emailed American Hauntings and only said hi to me, which I think is very telling that she knows I'm the one that's getting those emails. (laughs) Yeah. So And she also messaged me this on Facebook, word for word. 
says, hi, Cody. I have thoughts about why the Manson family murders uh, were such a big deal across the country. Oh, she sent this to me, too. Oh, she did? And okay. I went, oh, yeah, that's cool. And that was all. And that was it. Told. Okay. I'm going to give it a little bit more of a uh, limelight. But said, I was young, but I remember it very well. I was in Kansas in a very straight-laced typical She's family. She's really old. That's why. <laughs> She's so. great. I wish she was my mom. Uh, the year before, 1968, the killings was probably the most tumultuous this country has seen since the Civil War. Then in 69, no one knew what was going to happen next. The war was still raging, and young people were not only protesting the war, the draft, and the way universities were run, but thousands of young people were suddenly tossing out the norms and were doing anything they felt like doing and became anti-establishment, quote, um, in every way possible. Nothing was the same. Normal was done. I think the actual murders were a shock, but we saw war death counts on the evening news every night. Sure, it was shocking, but the news moved on around the country. The big scare came when the Manson family was arrested and it turned out to be a commune of drugged out hippies. I think that scared the hell out of those straight-laced normal people all over the country. Suddenly an entire group of the uh, suddenly an entire group of people that the older generation didn't understand went from a strange oddity to out of control crazed murderers. It didn't matter that it was a relatively small number of people involved. Suddenly the entire establishment's fear had been realized and they could point their fingers and say, "I told you these people were crazy and not oh. to be trusted." Hippies, protesters, tree huggers, they were all thrown into the same pot. Did you have to use the word pot? Um, the, Manson family be- the Manson family became the national poster children for why we needed to fear everyone in that pot. I believe that... Sorry, this is hard to read. I'm so old now. I believe the reason that Manson and his gang are remembered still isn't because of who they killed, but that they validated people's fears and hatred of groups who had been breaking away from the civilized norm and lived life differently. That is what inserted inserted the killers in into the national conscience and the mystique of the victims cemented the events into a benchmark in American history. That's my opinion. You no, asked for it. No, it's just good. Yeah, no, that's a good opinion. I first, so I think it's completely on the nose. Yes, yeah. She said, yeah, I sent this a messenger. I hope you're well. See you soon. See you soon, Ray. I can't wait to see you at the conference. Uh, that's all I got, man. I've got one oh, here. Got I got one. something I want to mention. Okay. Um, I, somebody, uh, one of our, our listeners, I'm just going to, Say Emily. Yeah. Uh, she's a support, been a longtime supporter of the podcast, but she sent me this message and I didn't know how to answer it. And I neither do you, okay. neither one of us do, but one of our listeners might ah, be able to yeah. help her. Why not? Yeah. Um, she said, Hey, and she said, Hey, Troy, um, my daughter Gwen, who had her first investigation last summer, uh, is asking me how to get her artwork into books and such. She does horror creatures usually. Mostly stuff that has a creep factor. I wonder if you could help me point her in the right direction. I have no idea how artwork gets published like she's talking about. Um, anyway, so then she talks about the podcast but and how awesome I am. No, I'm just kidding. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, uh-huh. I, I, and I, didn't, I told her I really didn't know how to answer yeah. her. But, so if anybody out there does, knows anything about artwork or does anything with artwork or something like that as far as illustrations and things go... Uh, drop us a line. We'll pass it on to Emily. Yeah. And, um, you know, maybe, um, you know, maybe something that would help her be able to do something with her with her stuff. So, yeah. Why not? Yeah. Let's let's use this podcast to help people for once. I like that idea. <laughs> uh, no. Yeah. Let's let's connect people. And, and yeah, figure that out, because that'd be that would be great. Um, one thing actually I did want to mention is my sister-in-law reached out to me and apparently her aunt, uh, Alicia, 
was talking to her mom about this podcast that she loves and kept going. And she's like, you know, that that's like Samantha's brother-in-law, right? She's like, yeah, I had no idea. So shout out to Alicia. She found our podcast. It was recommended to her on Audible. And oh, that's the that's second nice. person now huh. that's had it recommended to them on Audible. I didn't even know we were on Audible. I know. I, no I, 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 take, I, know. I take care of this. Well, that's fine. Now. And that's good. But yeah, I don't. I'm glad we're all over the place, though, because I've got a couple of podcasts that have come up that I've wanted to listen to. I can't find them anywhere. And I'm like, oh, they're on Audible. Really? And I'm like, oh, why? Just Audible. Maybe they paid for it. I was going to say they had to have yeah, they must Spotify have. them so, up or something. Yeah, something. Or... But, oh, man. Yeah. All well, right. Cool. Uh, that's all I got. Uh, all right. Well, guys, thanks for listening. And um, thanks for joining us for another episode and for hanging in there through all of our well, okay. I should say I shouldn't say our weird rants <laughs> you got and a mouse things. In your pocket that, over there? Yeah, that would be me. And um, you know, I'm not going to apologize for you know the things that I, I wouldn't say. Want you to. I'm not going to apologize for them. Um, that's how I feel, and thankfully, we have a place where I can say how I feel. Yeah. And you don't have to like them, I guess. I mean, <laughs> if you agree, don't agree, whatever. Um, you know, it's not really part of the material of the podcast so you can just ignore it and say it's one of my eccentricities and leave it alone yeah. so anyway but thanks for listening we we really do appreciate it and we uh, hope that we'll see a lot of you on uh, in a week or so at the conference and mm -hmm. maybe some of the stuff we have going on this fall or online or somewhere so uh, anyway thanks a lot Take care, and uh, we'll see you next time. And I'll, I'll be at the conference uh, taking ghost yes, stories and recording ghost stories. It's if gonna if be great. they're good and if they're short <laughs> enough. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, no long, long stories. I will we put cannot them, do long ones. Yeah, I'll put them on some podcast episodes, bonus stuff. and uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. I can't wait. So this episode of the American Hauntings podcast was written by Troy Taylor. and It was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. If you're not a regular listener of the podcast, damn it, we hope you'll check it out in a bi-weekly dose of history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere you listen to your favorite shows. This is a different one. See the website at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com for more in. info about the show, notes, photos, links, and more. I'm your Huckleberry. I just wanted you to hear I that. I love that. I love that. Um, so I figured since you've watched Tombstone, I could retire Orson Welles thank for you. a while. If so. you're a regular listener, we hope you take the time to review us on the Apple Podcast app and share the show with your friends, neighbors, relatives, people you pass in the street, whoever, your aunt on Audible, whatever. We couldn't and would do the show without you if you're a fan then you also know that american hauntings is not just a podcast it's this whole crazy office that i'm in right now it's, it's books <laughs> yeah, tours we are, events yeah, we are at the office more and our main website is americanhauntings.net <laughs> for those of you who write to us and tell us that you wish we had posted shows more often well you can have fresh content if you support the show on patreon it's not the only perk you'll get either there are discounts shirts stuff in the mail all kinds of things for those who don't understand how important our patreon is to us go back and listen to that first season and then listen to this one yeah that's right. Patreon is what made it all get better. So check it out at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. And if you have any comments about the show, suggestions, reviews, jokes, clips from Val Kilmer, um, and just want to tell us what you really think of us, we're reachable via email on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, messages in a bottle, carrier pigeons, and Telegram. Until next time, goodbye. So long. See you later. See ya. Oh. I'm your Huckleberry. Huckleberry.